You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Good morning. It's good to see you today. One of the things that I learned in school was that context is everything. C-I-E. I would have professor after professor that would come and, and would talk about a passage of scripture, being a Bible major, they would say, context is everything. And this morning we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that I wanna remind you that context is everything. It's amazing how people can take the scripture and twist it and get it to say whatever they want it to say. But when you look at it in the original context in which it's given, it helps bring a little more understanding about how the author intended that to be understood. Now mind you, Holy Spirit can take something in the scriptures and apply it to your life, and it could be totally out of the context, but that's for you personally. That's for what you need in that moment, in that time and space area that all of a sudden now the Holy Spirit reminds you of a verse that says, bah, 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 and you think, oh, that's good. But when you look at it in the context, it might not mean that. But the Holy Spirit knows how to speak so that you can hear. Now, have I muddied the waters completely for you? Everybody confused? Let's continue in our series in Mark. And the passage that we read today for those that are visiting with us, we've been in a series through the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and today we're going to finish up chapter 8. And previously, Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and then Jesus started teaching about what the Messiah was going to experience in the near future. And Peter said, no, 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 that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit with everything we have been taught about the Messiah. See, for the, for the Jews, when the Messiah comes, political power shifts. Poverty shifts. Prosperity, control, no longer being at the bottom of the class system, but rising to the top. And Jesus has now got just a few weeks to prepare them for everything that he was going to endure. And so here in chapter eight, he shared with them that he was gonna suffer, that he was gonna be beaten, that he was gonna be rejected, that every, every authority, politically, religiously, was going to reject him, and that he would suffer and that he would die. That's not my understanding of how Superman's supposed to work. But here, Jesus is preparing them for a picture that is so much larger than the narrowness of man's ability to comprehend. And here he's, he's talking about something that is an eternal plan. And this moment of suffering and death, they never really quite catch that three days later he will rise from the dead.
the Lord isn't willing to be misunderstood. He's willing to be misunderstood so that the reality of the purpose of the Father could come forth. So he gets rebuked by Peter, and then he takes, as Peter had taken Jesus aside to rebuke him in private, Jesus then looks and includes the disciples and rebukes Peter and addresses him as the adversary, as Satan, who wasn't interested in the purposes of God, but the purposes of man. Hmm. So it's in that context, a rebuking context, that we find our passage continues. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would release your spirit to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's revisit the same passage out of the Passion Translation. If you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely disown your life. Hmm. And you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own, as you continually surrender to my ways. For if you let your life go for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will continually experience true life. But if you choose to keep your life for yourself, you will forfeit what you try to keep. For what use is it to gain all the wealth and power of this world with everything it could offer you at the cost of your own life? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? So among the faithful and sinful people living today, if you are ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of you when he makes his appearance with his holy messengers in the glorious splendor of his Father. Wow. So after being rebuked and rebuking Peter in response, he calls the crowd. Now this is not just for his disciples. He, he calls the crowd to him when he, when he de delivers this, this good news. <laughs> Do you consider this good news? You got this on your refrigerator? Deny yourself? Yeah, it's right there, front and center. And he said, if anyone would come after me, and we usually understand that as, as follow me. 
But as, as I was just reflecting on what does it mean to come after? Well, there's a sequence, there's a temporal signature to this, and it's like John the Baptist said, there will be one who will come after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And so there's a sense in which now Jesus says, if you'll come after me, oh, now we, the disciples and the multitude, the crowd that's there, they have an invitation, and now it's not just for us four and no more. It, it's an open, extended invitation. Now, mind you, the Gospel of Mark is being written to Gentiles and believed to be Roman Gentiles from the church at Rome. And so as, as he's writing to the Romans, he's letting them all know that when Jesus says this, he says, this is what it is to follow me. If you wanna be my disciple, this is what it looks like. If you're going to come after me, this is some of the demands, some of the requirements that are, that are there. He says, and this is not in the subjective mood, this is in the imperative. These are not optional. Here's your options, pick one, no. He must deny himself. He must deny himself. I don't know about you, but most of the time, I don't like denying myself. You do that Weight Watcher thing. Anybody done Weight Watchers? You know, it's like you gotta deny your cravings and, oh yeah, that's, that's not fun. But here it's, it's more than just denying, it's disowning. It's having a relationship with yourself where you say, you will no longer control me. The, the natural tendencies of this and that, you, you won't control me anymore. Now notice that in between these is the conjunction and. He must deny himself and he must take up his cross. Okay? Take up the cross. They don't know Jesus hasn't been crucified. All their relationship to crucifixion has been with foreigners and criminals. It's never been with rabbis. It's never been with men who had a, a stature and integrity about them. And so they have no concept of this. But when he uses that and he expresses it at this point in the story, you know that it's talking about danger and it's talking about sacrifice. There's gonna be risk involved in following Christ. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. Follow the way that he has chosen. Mm. Obeying his teaches, teaching, including what he says about giving our lives, laying down our lives. And so here, here's the, the three demands of following him. What's the context? You can't die. Peter is going to make sure you don't die. He's gonna be personal protection. Jesus, you're not gonna die. Because Peter has his own interest 
and what he thinks the Messiah should do. Have you ever identified with that? Lord, here's our plan. <laughs> I'll do this and you do that. And it, sometimes we, we, we don't understand the nature of our relationship with the Lord. Because he's a good, good father and he loves us as his kids, he wants us to include, he wants us to be able to, to come in and to have access into his very throne room, into his presence. He receives us, he accepts us, but he doesn't follow us. It's amazing how familiar we can get with the Lord through our understanding of a good, good father and some of the relationship dynamics possibly with a father who would let the kids walk all over him and do all sorts of stuff and take advantage and exploit this and that. I, well, I am amazed at how patient Father God is, how patient he's been with me. I am absolutely amazed at. But at the same time, I'm under no delusion that I control him, that he, now that I've joined his team, he's seen my gifts and abilities, and he says, man, you know, we need Rick to be our captain. You know, Holy Spirit, you're in agreement with that? No, there is no, there's no delusion of being in leadership control. The way of the kingdom is always one of submission and surrender surrender and allow the Lord to direct our paths. If we submit to all the things that are coming at us to him and ask him to direct our paths, it's amazing how he's so faithful. He always does it. Mm -hmm. So the Passion Translation puts it this way. Put the first one up there, dear. Completely disown your life. <laughs> Second one, willing to share my cross and experience it as your own. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. You know, Paul, Paul is constantly talking ab about the, the crucified life and to realize that there is a sense in which we die when we come in relationship with him. We may come in with the euphoria of having our sins forgiven but as we get to know him, we understand, oh, I want to be one with him. I just don't want the forgiveness package. I want the package where now I have the opportunity of becoming one in Christ, one with him. And as we do that, we find out as we go along this journey that there's things that we've got to allow the Lord to dismantle. There's things that he calls us to, things that we lay down. I know in the vineyard, there's some things that have really surprised me that's different than my holiness background that I grew up in. And when I'm in a meeting and all of a sudden, these kind of activities, these, the, this expression, of, and the Lord just said, others may, you may not. So I don't get a religious handbook of all the rules that I've got to abide by, I have a active relationship where he can speak and he knows me better than I know myself. And he can say, you know, yeah, I see that Fred and Sue and 
Beverly's doing this, but you're not supposed to. Now that doesn't then exalt me to be above them and to judge them for behaviors that the Lord said I couldn't do, so therefore if I can't do it, it can't be healthy for anybody. No, he knows each one of us. And when he gives us a personal word of instruction and says, no, don't do that, that's not good for you, you need to listen. Makes good sense. Don't let the enemy trick you into a religious superiority to where you start becoming judgmental of everybody else who's not living as holy as you are. No. But realize, he speaks to you and says, this is not good for you because he knows how we're wired and he also knows how the adversary will try to use that to do harm to us. So we have to be very, very attentive to what the Lord says. And the last one, continually surrender to my ways. Hmm. Yeah, continually surrender. The, the, it's, it's a whole life of surrender, submission and surrender. So it kind of goes against the American way, doesn't it? It's just amazing how our Western culture and, and how we've done life up till now is, is just the antithesis of the kingdom culture. And so we have to, have to be aware of that. So after he, he gives the demands, he talks with us about, you know, what's, what's the rationale behind this? Why, why should we do these things? because they're really not in my best interest as far as right now and the fun and the pleasure and everything that I can enjoy right now, he gives the rationale. Saving one's life. It's kind of natural. We, we are all about self-preservation, making the choices that will make life the very best for ourselves. And here he goes, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it? I thought if I was going to save my life, I would be able to live another day. Hmm. But whoever loses his life, and here we go, for me, we lose our life for Christ, for the Lord Jesus, and for the gospel, we'll save it. Hmm. Let's go on with the next, and then we'll wrap this together. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Here the Greek is suke. It's, it, it can be go for soul or life. It, uh, so you can put, if it, to forfeit his own life, his soul. But I think the translators put soul in here because they wanted to, to convey an eternal concept. A, a sense of this is not just your life, it's not just you're gonna be dead, but it's that you're gonna lose your soul. And that has a little sense as, as they're translating into English, a concept of, of eternity, that I'll be lost forever. 
I'll lose it forever. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Hmm. Jesus did this at the Sermon on the Mount. He said, who, who by worrying can add a, a, another minute to your day or add a couple more inches to your stature? Uh, King James Version's what I grew up with when I was young and I just thought, man, I would love to get my stature increased. Just, I'd like to hit the six foot mark. You know, if I could just get six foot, that would, that would do it. I need two more inches. Well, that was when I had hair. Let's say three inches now. And it's like, what will you give in exchange? Well, there are certain things you have no control over. You can't make yourself have more time, less time, height. I can add dimensions to my weight, unfortunately. But uh, here it's like, no, who, what can you give in exchange for your soul? The connotation is when you realize that it's your life, we will do anything to protect the life, our lives. When it comes to the lives of, of those that we love, we, we will do whatever is needed to make sure that their life continues. And it's like, what will man give in exchange for his soul? We've got a plethora of movies to where there's bargains made with the devil, there's stuff that goes into the dark side and all this in order to bring some good thing to pass. Yeah. So here's how Jesus kind of wraps up this, this passage. He gives us a warning. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Whoa. Do you remember the first time you read that passage? I think I'm about 12, 13 years old, and I read this passage, and I'm thinking, oh, this is scary. You know, this, this isn't come to Jesus, and he'll take you as a little lamb and put you on his shoulders, and he'll carry you because he loves you. And all, and all of a sudden, I'm reading this part, and it's like, this is absolutely scary. Lord, am I willing? Am I willing to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you to the point that I might die? Well, I surely, I surely don't want to, to, to play for the accolades of, of people and miss the approval of my Father in heaven. And here Jesus is talking and he's trying to, to help them understand that the Messiah is not going to look the way they thought it was going to look. That the Messiah is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He will suffer. He will be shamefully abused. He will die and he will rise again on the third day. Oh, and by the way, I would appreciate it if you weren't ashamed of me as I go through the passion, as I go through all the suffering. He's given them a heads up. 
This is before it happens. He's telling them what's going to happen because he, he knows human nature. He knows his, his disciples. They've been together for three years and he's telling them so that when it happens, the enemy won't be able to manipulate them into thinking that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And so he says, this is it, but this is, this is part of the original God plan of how Father brings us back together as family. As family, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of me or I will be ashamed when I come back in clouds of glory, the second coming, when the Lord Jesus returns. Does anybody want the Lord to look at you and say, oh, I'm ashamed. Now, mind you that the primary source for the Gospel of Mark is Peter. Peter, the disciple. Peter, the one who just moments before said, you are the Christ. Then pulled him aside and said, no, you don't understand how Messiah works. And he rebukes Jesus. Then he gets rebuked called Satan, told to get behind, get back in your right spot. And now Jesus is continuing to explain. And he will for chapters eight, or chapters nine, 10, 11, 12. He's got this time, and we've seen that right now the focus is not on multitude ministry, it's on getting the disciples ready because they have got a, a whole paradigm shift in their mind, their thinking, their understanding of who the Messiah is that's just being shattered. But he wants them to get the picture. Now, here's my concern. I know how the evil one works. And we, we, we come across a passage like this and you just say, well, I'm really not, I haven't really denied myself that well. Matter of fact, I still like to play golf. Maybe I should deny myself. We go through the, and he starts bringing the condemnation, all that kind of stuff, any way he can twist the scriptures. Now, if the Holy Spirit says, give up golf, he probably should do that. But if he doesn't, it's probably the voice of the evil one that's trying to restrict something that brings you pleasure and, and beauty and rejuvenation recreation, so don't get me off on that. Let's get back to <laughs> Peter heard this, rebuked Jesus, gets called Satan. He's in the garden. Jesus is on trial. And do you know, this is one of his disciples. No, I don't know the guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's one. Listen to his, his Galilean accent. No, I, I've never. And then he, the third time, he, he, he swears. He, he takes oaths on a stack of Bibles. I don't know this guy, you know, or the equivalent back then. And, he's, and then the rooster crows. When I look at Peter, I don't know if there could be a, a more tormented follower of Jesus on the planet but yet I've known something of his tormentation. And if we, if we took this 
today's passage, we just say, oh, Peter, guess what, buddy? When Jesus returns second coming, you are going to make Jesus feel ashamed to know you. It's like, oh, really? That's why you got to read it in context. Because the rest of the story is, Peter doesn't know how to make things right, but the Lord pursues Peter. And upon the resurrection, and by the way, Peter is at the crucifixion. He's there. I imagine he's still trying to figure out a plan to hatch so that Jesus can be the Messiah of his dreams and that we could take over Rome and overthrow the political system. He's there. His heart has got to be so convoluted. And here in the midst of this, Jesus raised from the dead says, go tell my disciples and Peter He's included. That had to do something. Probably filled combination of and oh, he, probably ambivalence that's off the chart where you're feeling two opposite emotions at the same time. And then he comes, and then Jesus comes by the lake, cooks fish, and reinstates Peter. Peter denies him three times. Three times the Lord says, do you love me more than these? Three times Peter says, Lord, you know. And we see that there's something that's healing in that moment. And as Peter writes in his epistle, and as we hear from church history, you know, Peter was so taken with Jesus and his, no doubt, inability to stay true to him that he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the normal way. He was crucified upside down, according to church history. And so here's, here's something of a thing. So if the evil one uses these scripture verses and in any way tries to disqualify you as being included, you need to go back and remember the story of how it happened in Peter's life. He denied, he was reinstated, and he became the spokesman of the disciples again. And we see in the book of Acts, the things that he did. He did the same things that Jesus did. So my pastoral heart wants to make sure that everybody here doesn't get beat up by the evil one, by the, the imperatives of the scripture. These are non-negotiables. But no, in context, there's oftentimes more than taking just a few verses out of context. And we'll see what happens next in chapter nine. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.